Well, as we all can see, the construction project has finally begun on our new equipping center. At least it's begun at some level. And this project is phase one of a master plan. And if the Lord allows, there will be a phase two someday. Our church's master plan, though, is insignificant if you compare it to another master plan. And I'm referring to the divine master plan that God created in the counsel of His own eternal mind in eternal past according to His own will that relates to His redemptive purposes in this world. Our master plan is not flawless by any means, and that's why we periodically reevaluate it and adjust it due to changing circumstances and changing perspectives and new counsel and so forth, but God's master plan is not like that. It is perfect. He is the divine architect and the divine project manager, and as those things, God is overseeing His perfect master plan to ensure that it comes to completion just as He originally determined it. It will never need to be altered. Now, we find God's master plan throughout the Bible, of course, at least all that He chose to communicate to us about it. But one place in particular is our text that we are studying today, Romans 8, verses 28 and 29. So we are pausing our study of 1 Thessalonians here on Sunday mornings. I wanted to preach something that would relate to tonight's special service at 6 o'clock. I'll remind you more about that in a few moments, and this text would certainly relate to that. Romans 8, 28 and 29. This is a famous passage that highlights the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. Now, that's a doctrine that we love as long as life is going the way we want it to go. When life is good, we rejoice in God's sovereign plans and how those plans are unfolding. However, when we go through difficult circumstances or when there's suffering involved or perhaps the death of a loved one, people start questioning God, start thinking thoughts like this, a good God could never allow that. Again, if something great happens in our life, if something miraculous happens with events all coming together in just the best way, we easily rejoice in God's sovereignty, even His predestination. On the other hand, if your family, for example, has gone through one trial after another, it is possible to start doubting God's power, to doubt His wisdom, to doubt His love, His justice, and so on, it's doubting God's sovereignty, and especially His predestination. But our authority is not our experience, at least it should not be. For God's people, our final authority is Scripture. And Scripture, the Word of God, makes it clear that God is indeed sovereign over all things and that He is indeed perfectly wise and good and just. The fact is, the Lord is so wise 
that he can even bring good out of evil. That's exactly what Joseph told his brothers. You remember back in the book of Genesis, he told his brothers, the ones who had sold him into slavery so many years before he's interacting with them. It's a terrible thing they did to Joseph. Joseph suffered more than once because of what they did to him. Years later, they're in his presence, and they're fearing now Joseph's vengeance, that Joseph will get back for what they had done to him. So they ask him, what are you going to do? And here is his, Joseph's profound response. You know, it's found in Genesis 50, 20. He told his brothers this, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Well, our passage today in Romans 8 is the New Testament version of that very same thought. As we know, Romans 8 is a glorious chapter in the Word of God. Many consider the book of Romans as the diamond of the New Testament, and they would go on to say that really this chapter is the primary sparkle of that diamond. It's a chapter that teaches God's sovereignty in both suffering and salvation. But let me set the stage just a little more specifically for our study today, starting in verse 28. If you go back to verses 17 and 18 in this chapter, those verses teach us that true Christians are considered to be fellow heirs with Christ, the Son of God. But that includes the reality that we will suffer with Him, therefore, but it also includes the reality that we will be glorified with Him in eternity. You go on to verses 18 through 25, and we find that even creation, the universe, creation also suffers because of the curse that's upon it, the curse of sin. Creation longs for deliverance from the curse, longs for deliverance from the bondage to corruption. And that section 18 through 25 even reminds us that believers certainly do groan inwardly as we wait for the future and our redemption. You get to verses 26 and 27, though, and there's great encouragement in this chapter, especially in our times of suffering. It says something amazing here in verses 26 and 27, that the Holy Spirit, who indwells all true Christians, all true believers, actually prays for us in our times of prayer and suffering, prays for us according to the will of God. God's perfect will. Here's what Romans 8, 26 and 27 say, at least parts of them. The Spirit helps our weakness, for we don't know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us, in verse 27 says, according to the will of God. That brings us then to the remainder of the chapter, starting in verse 28 all the way to the end, which is a wonderful section that certainly focuses on the providence of God and the purposes of God. So our text today, verses 28 and 29, are are found in that final section. And these are verses that have encouraged so many Christians in times of trial. In particular, verse 28 of Romans 8 has been a favorite verse to many along the way. Countless numbers of believers have memorized this verse as well we should. What we find in verse 28 is a glorious promise, a promise of God's sovereign activity in our times of trial and difficulty. Let me read it for us, Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, 
to those who are called according to his purpose. Notice that first word, it's a beginning conjunction, and it's an important term because it's affirming that there's a connection of this verse to the previous discussion about suffering, especially to those previous verses right before this about the spirits praying for us. In other words, we not only find encouragement to know that the Spirit helps us and intercedes for us according to the will of God, but we also are encouraged and we're also encouraged by this promise in verse 28. And it says something else there interesting. It says, we know. That's different than what is said in the previous verses about the Spirit. In verse 26 that I read earlier, it says, we do not know how to pray as we should. But here it says there is something that we do know. We know that God has a plan. We know that God causes all things to work together for good. So it's a great promise. But since this verse is such a popular verse... We need to make sure we accurately understand what it really is saying. If it's not understood properly, all kinds of far-fetched and wrong conclusions can be reached. So today, we're going to walk through some important clarifications of what God says here. There are five of them. Five clarifications of this glorious promise. Here's clarification number one. A clarification of the subject. A clarification of the subject. In other words, who's behind this promise? You see, some Greek manuscripts, the New Testament, what we have in our English Bibles is translated from various copies of Greek manuscripts. Some Greek manuscripts actually have the word God in it. You'll see there on the screen, you can still see this verse. Well, let's leave the verse up there and we'll just meditate on it. Verse 28, it says, God causes all things. Some manuscripts, though, leave that name out and just say all things. In other words, some say God causes all things to work together for good. Others just say all things work together for good. But whether the word is or is not in the original Greek manuscripts, ultimately, there's no disagreement and no doubt of who is behind all this. No doubt that God is the one who accomplishes what this wonderful promise is referring to. So this is an important place to start. We need to recognize something here. Events, circumstances, on their own, do not tend toward good in and of themselves. Mere things do not work together for good or evil. So this verse is not teaching the idea of some sort of luck. It's not teaching some ill-defined fate, you know, that's existing out there in the cosmos. Neither is the Apostle Paul. Paul is the human author, the one the Spirit of God used to write this book. Neither is the Apostle Paul expressing some naivete here, a naive, optimistic interpretation of history. In other words, he's not saying here, listen, somehow everything's just going to work out. Rather, this verse is teaching us what Christians do know. We know that God is the directing and supporting force behind all the events of life. There's one clarification. Here's clarification number two. It's a clarification of the scope. The scope. In other words, what's included in the little phrase, 
that you see there, all things. Well, the Greek term that's used here does focus in this context, especially on sufferings and tribulations that turn out for the good of the Christian, yet the all-encompassing character of the term should not be ignored. So ultimately, what limits the scope of this idea with the term that's used here, translated all things, what limits the scope is captured in one English word, and that's the word nothing. The all things include anything at all. Good things, the things we would describe as blessings or successes or achievements, but also included are those things that we would label as undesirable or unpleasant, things bad, things difficult, things harmful, things hostile, things horrible, the worst things, anything that is a part of this life experience even our sins and the sins that others commit against us are used by God for His sovereign purpose of bringing good. I can broaden it even further. The all things includes everything and anything that's ever happened to you in the past as well as all things that can possibly even happen to you in the future. All of it is so ordered and controlled by God that the end result is inevitably and utterly our good. Notice I emphasize the idea of end result. Notice this this verse does not say something here. This verse does not say all things are good. The reality is that all things are not good. Suffering, persecution, grief, Sin, failure, insults, pain, injustice, all things are not good, not in themselves. Let's go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. God created this world, according to Scripture. God created the first man and woman, and Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden. And when he did, a curse entered upon this world. This world has been fallen, Scripture says, ever since. And therefore, since Adam's sin and this world has fallen, it's been filled ever since with pain and evil. But again, the promise is that nothing can befall us if we belong to the Lord. Nothing can befall us that God cannot use for good. And some people don't like that. I mean, you'd think it'd be encouraging, but here's how some people think. Yeah, I don't like this. I think he's taking the wrong approach. I've been sinned against. I'm not looking for God to work something good out of that. I want God to rain down fire and judgment on that person. That's what God should do. Or instead of God working in and through some difficult circumstance, that's not what excites me. I want God to just change the circumstance. But the fact remains, Scripture says that God brings good out of bad, no matter what the bad is, he truly does use all things to accomplish that. Clarification number three, a clarification of the action. Of the action. There's another grammatical issue here. Should the main verb that you see there, should it be rendered work together or just simply work? 
Most of the Greek manuscript evidence points to the simpler translation, actually. Just work. All things work for good. In other words, the together part is not actually necessary because it is not only in the interaction of all things that good comes. God causes good to come even in and through only one thing or one event, even if there's no interaction of that thing with another thing. So there's no thinking here in this verse, really there's no thinking like this anywhere in Scripture that God is not sovereign, that He just reacts to things, something that's happened, then He tries to figure out what to do. Nowhere in Scripture does it present God as He's just some sort of partner in the operation working with things that happen. He's just actively working, period. All according to His perfect will and according to His eternal decrees. Clarification number four, clarification of the beneficiaries. Is this promise for everyone? And the quick answer is no. And that is confirmed in two subordinate clauses in the verse. And I know you're thinking, I love it when he uses grammatical phrases like that in terms. It just takes me back. I long to be back in junior high again, middle school, and learning all that for the first time. No, for most, there's a wave of nausea that comes over them, you know. (laughs) To hear something like a a subordinate clause, well, sorry, but there's two of them. In verse 28, it's the clause, to those who love God. And the next one, to those who are called. Now, the first clause is answering the question, who is this promise for? The first clause is answering that question from the human side of things. The other clause is answering it from God's perspective, the divine side. But they are two parallel descriptions of the same people, not two different groups. The first one, this promise is only for those who love God. Now, just so you'll know, that phrase is actually emphasized in the Greek. Literally in the Greek, it's up at the front. It literally says, for those who love God, all things work together for good. That's a way of emphasizing it. So Paul was not writing it. He's making it clear. This was not written to the general public. He's only talking to and about true Christians. And true believers are those who love the Lord. Let me caution something there, though. This is not referring to some special level of love for God. In other words, it's not saying that this promise doesn't have validity for the Christian who's not loving God enough in their life. No, loving God in this verse is just what sums up the basic inner direction of all true believers. That is a way that Scripture does often speak of true Christians. Here's one example in 1 Corinthians 8 verse 3. In 1 Corinthians 8 verse 3 it says, if anyone loves God, he, that person, is known by God. And known there means a relationship of intimacy. And as well, Scripture gives a warning about those who don't love God. That's also 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 20. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. <clears throat> Pretty important. It's a line drawn in the sand. So it is the wondrous truth that believers, by definition, are those who love everything about God. True believers love His character. 
They love His ways. They love His will. They love His truth. They love His people. But the relationship we have with the Lord is not only based upon our love for Him, and in fact, it's not even the most important perspective here. So Paul adds this qualifier to further describe those who love God and thus whom the promise is for. The second clause is to those who are called according to His purpose. Same group of people. And the term purpose means design, His will. As I said, this is looking at our relationship to God from the divine side. Something also referenced in more detail in a verse, a couple of verses or so later in verse 30. You can look down at that. We'll put that up for you as well. Verse 30, not part of our sermon text, but this is a very important verse. It's known in theology as the golden chain of salvation because of these links that are articulated in the chain. Romans 8, verse 30, and these whom he predestined, he also called, and these whom he called, he also justified, and these whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, these are all very important biblical terms related to God's master plan, terms we don't have time to deal with today. For now, just note this, that according to his own eternal decrees, which this is what is in this verse, his eternal decrees, they're linked together, but notice the one word, God does supernaturally call his people to himself. His people are the called ones. And this call is the very same thing that Jesus spoke about to Nicodemus in that famous Q&A session in John chapter 3 where Nicodemus, a leader in the Pharisee, came to Jesus at night and was asking him questions. And Jesus went right to the point of his heart and said, Nicodemus, unless someone is born again, they will not see the kingdom of God. Unless someone has a new spiritual birth because we're born spiritually dead, unless someone is born again, literally from above, they will not see the kingdom of God. God, by His Spirit, takes a spiritually dead person, which is the way we're all born, and makes them spiritually alive. That means the Holy Spirit opens that person's heart to understand and to believe the truth and to repent of sin and to put their trust in Christ alone for their forgiveness of their sin. That person is saved from their sin. These saved people, God's true people, are the called ones. So in theological studies, we call that the effectual call of God. It's not merely an invitation that God just throws out. Not this word. This is a summons that overcomes human resistance. It effectually persuades a person to say yes to God and to begin loving God. So both sides are descriptions of a true Christian. And thus, both describe who can benefit from this promise. This promise is specific. It's not universal. There's a a sign, in a sense, hanging on this promise that says, for believers only, and not for those who have ignored or rejected the gospel message and the gift of salvation. The beneficiaries are those who love God, who have been called by God. Fifth and final clarification. Number five, a clarification of the results. We've seen it already. Good's going to come, but what's the meaning of the term good? 
I mean, there are those who twist the meaning to say that what we find here, it's a, it's a promise of material wealth or it's a promise of physical well-being or it's the removal of this trial, it's the change of my circumstance. I mean, honestly, that's definitely a typically Western sort of perspective, a Western perversion of the good here. Just thinking of material possessions and health and prosperity and the absence of suffering and difficulty. Listen, we need to make sure we understand the definition of this term from God's perspective. Instead of a superficial definition of the good, he promises something far better. And we find it in verse 29. Verse 29. God purposed long before time ever began what the good is that he orchestrates, and regardless of the circumstances, what it will be. So he begins explaining that to us this way, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Let's stop there. Paul is clarifying and emphasizing the idea that all things conspire for good because of God's sovereign plan for his people. That is, the good realized is not just due to fate, as I said, or luck. It's not even due to the moral superiority of believers. It's due to God's good and sovereign will, which has from eternity past to eternity future secured and guaranteed the good for His people, this good. Now, to get to the proper sense of this verse, it is important to correctly understand that term foreknew. There are many who twist the meaning of this term in Scripture. Some say that to foreknow just means that God can look ahead and He gets knowledge of things and then backs up and makes decision on that knowledge, His prior knowledge of all things. That idea does not at all accurately represent the meaning of this Greek term translated foreknew. To understand it, you need to go back to the Hebrew term that's even the background of this Greek term. In the Old Testament... When it says that God knows someone, it's a particular Hebrew term that refers to his covenantal love in which he sets his affection on someone or even a nation ahead of time. He sets his affection on particular people or a particular nation ahead of time. Lots of verses in the Old Testament. I'll just give you a few. Exodus 13, verse 17, the Lord spoke to Moses said this, you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. It's not saying that I got some knowledge. Somebody wrote me a letter about you, Moses, so I figured out who you were, so I know you now. No, the term doesn't mean that. Of course God knew everything about Moses. It's a way of expressing that I know you, I call you to myself for an intimate relationship, I set my affection on you, my love. 1 Samuel 2, verse 12. Now, the sons of Eli were worthless men. I wouldn't want this to be my reference in Scripture, you know, how I'm remembered in the Word of God, worthless. The sons of Eli were worthless men. Why? They did not know the Lord. What does it mean there? They didn't have mental cognition about the existence of God? No, they had that. Their father taught them that. They did not know God and love Him. Jeremiah 1, verse 5, before I formed you in the womb, God told Jeremiah, I knew you. God chose him to be a prophet before he was ever born and set his affection on Jeremiah. Hosea 13, 5, 
It's translated differently there, but the same term. I cared for you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. I cared for you. Same Greek term. I loved you, cared for you. Sometimes it's translated chosen, even in the Old Testament. Amos 3, verse 2, talking about Israel, God says, I've chosen you. Some translations go ahead and translate it. I've known you. I knew you. You can translate it either way. He says, I've chosen you, known you among all the families of the earth. This is not saying that God had no factual knowledge of any other nation but Israel. Oh, he had all the facts about all the nations. The intention of that verse is that Yahweh, God, had a different intimate knowledge of Israel. He set his covenant love only upon Israel. So back to verse 29, that's the point here. The ones it says here that God predestined are the ones whom he had set his affection and love upon. So with that part of the verse understood, still asking the question, what's the good then? What has God purposed to happen for those upon whom he has set his affection, those he knows? What is the good? We tend to answer it sometimes only about the good that's for God. God does everything for his own glory, and that's, that's true. But here it's talking about good for his people. It's in the next part of verse 29. The good is this. This is what he's designed to become conformed to the image of his son. God's purpose or the plan and design he's determined is that believers should become like the one they believe in, like Christ. That's what he uses the all things for. They all contribute toward that good, Christ-likeness. Notice the word image. It's where we get our word icon. It's a term that means a a likeness or generally it's a pattern or an imprint or an appearance. So Paul adds that term here to emphasize that the pattern or the imprint that God is causing all things to create in us as his people is this image, this imprint of Christ. That's an important theological understanding. It is an important theological contrast to the imprint that we are born with. We are born with the imprint of Adam. Adam, the first man, created in the image of God. By his disobedience, though, that image was tragically marred. Not obliterated, but marred. And that marred image is what has been imprinted in the nature of all who descended from him. Every person is born with that sin-marred imprint. Either you have children, or you know someone that has children, or you were a child. You're in one of those categories, if not more than one. You do not have to teach children how to be selfish and self-focused. They come with the imprint. It's the imprint of Adam. So God's eternal purpose is to imprint on all those who belong to him the image of the one that Scripture calls the second Adam, Christ, who did what Adam did not do. Christ perfectly obeying, living perfectly holy. So this promise of verse 28 is not that we'll become rich. 
It's not that we're going to be physically healthy. It's not that all of our plans and dreams and expectations will work out. It's not that our marriages are going to be fulfilling. It's not that our children are going to live up to our expectations. It's not that we're going to be successful or admired or happy in the world's sense of those terms, or they're going to win the lottery or win American Idol or anything else you want to put on the list. It's not that we'll escape suffering and grief. Listen, take an honest look at human history. Many of God's people have endured failure, scorn, suffering, distressing personal experiences, pain, poverty. No, the good doesn't have to do, as one writer put it, I love this, the good does not have to do with what God is taking us out of. The good is not even what God is giving to us. The good is what God is making us into, the image of His Son. And there is no higher good than that. Get this if you don't get anything else. It is therefore only as we embrace God's purpose as our highest good and give up our own definitions of what is good, that we can ever come to see how sickness and suffering and persecution and death and grief and disappointment and pain and attack and hurt and other people's sin against us, or any other ill, how any of that could ever be used by God for good. It's only as we embrace God's purpose and definitions here that we can see it, and then live with peace in our hearts, regardless of what our circumstances are. Just one more thing to add to that, and it's, you might be thinking, when, when do we see this good? When does the conforming and the imprinting take place? Well, I'll go outside this passage for a moment and answer that. Scripture actually presents that there are two phases of it. First is the process of growth and change that we go through from our conversion to Christ onward. That's the doctrine of progressive sanctification, progressive spiritual growth, which was referenced in our sermon last week, right? In 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, you'll remember that, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, it says, for this is the will of God for you, your sanctification. Much of Scripture does deal with that, this present, ongoing process, conforming of believers to the image of Christ. It happens day by day as we study the Word of God, as we obey the Word of God and apply it to our lives. It, it, it happens day by day as we learn the lessons in our times of suffering, as we spend time in prayer, aligning our wills with God's will, which really is the ultimate purpose of prayer. As we repent of our sin, as we recognize it, all of that even as we look at Christ once again and we study more about Him and we see the, the beauty of His character, we're progressively growing and changing. 2 Corinthians 3.18 puts it this way. We're being transformed into that image of Christ from glory to glory. We've experienced it. Certainly as a pastor, I have heard this more than once, some version of it, of someone saying after they've come through some terrible suffering, difficult circumstances, say something like this, Pastor, my situation was horrible, and frankly, I would never want to endure it again, but I am thankful for everything the Lord taught me 
and for the person I became through that loss. So yes, we grow, we mature spiritually, and as we do, there is a measure of this Christ-likeness that we'll experience in this life. But there's a second phase of this imprinting, this conforming. There is coming a time where God's people, true believers, will be completely changed at our glorification. That's in the future. It's what Philippians 3 verse 21 talks about. Philippians 3:21, God will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. That's still to come. And in our verse, because of the context of Romans 8, Paul definitely, certainly had that in his mind as well, God's predestination of us to future glory, to that time when we will be completely conformed to the image of Christ in the future, in heaven. And the last clause of verse 29 does fit with that. 29 says, so that... He would be the firstborn among many brethren. The term firstborn here is not referring to birth order the way we tend to talk about it. You know, we ask that, are you the firstborn, secondborn, thirdborn? It doesn't mean that in Scripture. Firstborn is a word that refers to rank or dignity. In their day, you could be the second or thirdborn and be the one in the family with the highest dignity and rank or to be the preeminent one, and that's what this means here the place of preeminence. Christ is the preeminent one, the one with the highest level of importance in the family, so to speak. But firstborn does imply other people too. In God's family, there are many sons and daughters, those who are followers of Christ, have been adopted into His family, Scripture says, and therefore many brothers and sisters of Christ, of Christ who is the preeminent one. That's another way to describe our ultimate change. We're going to be finally changed into the likeness of our preeminent elder brother, the Lord Jesus. That's a clarification of the results. So let me just summarize the good then. God is conforming us into the image of Christ. He's using the various situations and experiences of our present life, including adversity, to accomplish this in some measure now, some measure. But we also look forward to the completion of that conforming in heaven. And we heard that verse quoted earlier, that completion is guaranteed. Philippians 1.6, Paul says, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So we're with him. So what a glorious promise, Romans 8, 28 and 29 is. What a wonderful plan. I mean, think about our plans. There are many things that can defeat our plans in this world, but not God's plans. Look at the chaos in the world around us. Listen, biblically, we have to say it is still a God-controlled world. Else we're defining God wrongly. Yes, the limits of His Power and sovereignty certainly appear to be stretched at times in what's going on around us, in the world around us. But the reality is that He never lets any nation, He never lets any individual go beyond what He has decreed. 
there's no reason really to be depressed due to the harsh conditions that can come into our lives. Through it all, God's working out His great plan and purpose. And no matter the circumstances, His purpose will not be overthrown. As Job 42 verse 2 says, no man can thwart your will. Let me just leave you then with three cautions that I think are in order. Here's the first caution. Be careful how you use this verse with other people who are suffering. Sometimes Christians use verse 28 unlovingly with others. I mean, cases even like in the hours after the death of a, of a loved one where an insensitive Christian says to the person grieving, well, I mean, your loved one's died, but just remember all things work together for good. I think people do that because we don't know what to say. We've got to say something. Silence is unbearable, we think. So I think people who do this are just avoiding the more difficult work and labor, and that is listening. And the more difficult work of even caring. So just a caution. Be careful. It's great truth. It'll bring a lot of encouragement. But as Proverbs says in different ways, like apples of gold and settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. Second caution, be careful that you don't abuse this passage by somehow demanding to see that good immediately because of something that's happened. The path that God is overseeing might take years to unfold on that circumstance and that event, that injustice, that suffering. Just like it did for Joseph in Egypt, it took years for him to see and to understand what he told his brothers. But as the trial continues and we wonder about it, we can get and feel overwhelmed, no doubt about that. We can get weary and we can think we just can't go on. And that may very well be true. And I will say this, we really can't go on until we're able to pause and once again get the perspective of what this passage presents. And then we can. God is sovereign over what He does and how He does it and the timing of it as well. Third caution, since we can't necessarily know a lot of the detail about what God is doing, then don't make the mistake of focusing on the what anyway. Don't focus on the what of God's ways. Instead, make a a habit of focusing on the what of His character, more on who He is, in other words. We can trust the what, we can trust whatever He's doing because we know who He is. So based upon who God is, you make this personal this morning. Are you living living in the encouragement that these verses offer? Are you applying the reality of this promise in your life in relation to the difficulties that you may be facing right now? Maybe in relation to the present world crisis that's going on. Again, I understand how it works. When times are good, we we do. When we have steady jobs, when our families are doing well and no one is sick and no recent catastrophe, no recent death, it's easy to say, wow, I love that verse. 
We know that all things work together for good. But what about the other times? Again, what about the trial that you're facing right now? Ultimately, it doesn't matter what we feel. What matters is what we've become convinced that we know. And we can know that what this verse says is true. So what a glorious benefit it is to being a Christian if we embrace this promise. Listen, all people are going to suffer, Christians and non-Christians alike. There's really no difference in that. The difference is if we know Christ, we have this promise. So ask yourself that. Are you a beneficiary of this promise? Do you know Christ? Have you ever submitted your life to Christ? Repenting of your sin, recognizing that, being honest about that, confessing that, turning from that, living for that, living for self, and saying, I'm coming to Christ. I'm going to trust Him alone. I'm not going to trust in my own goodness and my own good efforts or anything else. I'm not going to trust that I'm better than some other people I know. I'm going to trust in Him alone for the forgiveness of my sin. I'm going to follow Him as the Lord of my life. If that has never occurred in your life, then you don't have this promise. The best you can do is wish somehow things might turn out. My prayer is that you would come to trust Him, to know that God is completely true, and then to know the rest and peace that comes from this verse. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the reorientation that we need every Bible study. We need the reorientation of our thinking to be biblical. We so easily imbibe the teachings of traditions or what the world says or our flesh, whatever it might be, but we know that Your Word is inspired, it's inerrant, it's sufficient. We know it's our final authority. So, Lord, bring us to that place of submitting to Your Word so that we can live lives in light of the truth that's there and be pleasing to You. I do pray for anyone here who needs to open their heart to trusting Christ, that You will do that work that only You can do. Help them to see the beauty and the glory of who Christ is, the Son of God, and all that He did, living the perfect life that we could never live, and then giving His life on the cross to pay the debt of sin that we owe. And then coming back to life again to prove who He was, God in human form, and that His sacrifice and life were effective and sufficient to take care of sin. Lord, open their hearts to trust in that. In our Savior's name, amen.